Nope. There we go. Guess that came on loose. There we go, yeah. I had a couple jokes, but I got a lot to talk about. I'm not going to make jokes about that microphone. It involved Drew Dowler and Greg and their ages. So we'll have to save that for another time. We're in week six of a series going through the life of Moses. Um, and if you've missed any part of that, I announced this last week. But now, um, just so you know, all of the audio for the sermons are online. They're usually that, but we also have the video for the sermons online. We have um, the curriculum that goes along with the sermons online, as well as uh, soon to be the slides for the sermon online. So if you miss any Sunday, you can just go on and it's, it's, it's all there. So where are we at in the story? God's people, Israel, they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. God chooses Moses. He reveals himself in the burning bush event. God reveals his holy covenantal Hebrew name, Yahweh, to Moses, sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. Moses confronts Pharaoh, brings about 10 plagues. Finally, Pharaoh says, I will let the Israelites go free. As the narrative usually goes, though, Pharaoh has a hardening of heart, and then he changes his mind and then sends his armies after the Israelites to take them back to be his workforce again. God parts the Red Sea. Israelites go through it, and as the Egyptians are going through it, the water comes and destroys the Egyptian forces. Now, that's a pretty epic story. One of these days, I mean, they did this movie right the first time around like five decades ago, but one of these days they're going to do this in movie form and it's going to be good because they've been messing these movies up big time. That last Moses movie was lame. It had Batman in it. It was, it was just weird. Okay. Before all this epic stuff happened, Moses had a job. Do you remember what it was? Moses was a shepherd. And that's symbolically represented in the narrative by his staff. God sends him with his shepherd staff back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh. Now, when you think about a shepherd, there's a lot of images that may come to your mind, but most of these images are going to be based upon or dependent upon sort of a modern understanding of what a shepherd might do, or certainly in kind of like an American shepherd where there's a big kind of green pasture with a giant fence around tons of acres or some sheep dogs running around and the shepherd just kind of kicks back and watch, watches little baby lambs eat all day. That image is not the image that we should be thinking of. Moses learned to be a shepherd in Midian, a region that's not like Gilroy, California. It's more like this. It's a desert region. And so you may ask, how in the world do sheep live in that type of environment? And the answer is they rely upon shepherds to lead them. And so here's a picture of modern day where there's little bits of, of stuff on the ground that these sheep can eat and they're getting nourishment off of that. But ultimately, they have to be led on paths through the desert highways to find places where about that much sheep can eat. And they get led to something like that, a place of pasture place where they can eat and find sustenance. But if you've raised animals that graze like this, even this picture as awesome as it looks with the palm tree and the grass, how long do you think that food's lasting? Not very long. I mean, it may look like an all-you-can-eat buffet for them little sheep, but it ain't going to last long. So what happens? The shepherd has to lead the sheep from one pasture to another, and the sheep must Listen and obey his voice. 
Now, one of the lambs, one of the little sheep could be like, man, why is the shepherd calling us? We still got like 10% of this grass left. We could be eating it right now. And so all the other sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd, and that leftover one eats and maybe could survive for a couple days, but sure enough, because it did not listen to the voice of the shepherd, it lived on for quite some time, but eventually ran out of food and was alone. And because the sheep didn't listen to the voice of the shepherd, it dies by starvation or predators. This is very important. The sheep do not have all-you-can-eat buffets everywhere they look. They have to rely on the leading and the voice of the shepherd to guide them from pasture to pasture, day by day. If they fail to listen, they die. This was Moses' job. It's a picture of it taking place, again, uh, in the Bedou- by, by a Bedouin, um, in a region similar to that of what Moses would have worked in. But it's, it's hard work, day by day, place to place, green pasture to green pasture. Now, keep all of that in mind as we move forward in the story. Moses was a shepherd. Where are we at? We just said we've crossed the Red Sea, and the Israelites are celebrating. This is the, the climax of the deliverance of the Exodus. This is how chapter 15 ends. For when the horses of Pharaoh with the chariots and the horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters, the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went after her with tambourine and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. This is a song of victory. This is a triumphal scene. It doesn't get any higher and more awesome than this. God has delivered us from slavery. The Egyptian army, done, diminished, destroyed. We're walking on dry land, going into the promised land. Oh, happy day. This is the very next verse. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. You see the the changing of fortune here. Here, life is good, man. Gloating, celebrating. Now, Moses makes him go into the wilderness. Now, first note, there's a tradition here, a Jewish tradition that developed because of the language that says, then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Um, The language is strong. It's like Moses had to force them to leave the Red Sea. And so some of the the rabbis would say that um, Moses had to force Israel to leave the Red Sea because they wouldn't leave. And they questioned, well, why wouldn't they leave? And then some of them said, well, it's because many of them were waiting around trying to steal stuff off the dead Egyptians' bodies. Now, we don't know if that's true. That's a tradition that developed. But that makes sense to me. That's what I'd be doing. Wouldn't you? I mean, you see them Egyptian swords? I want one of them swords. I know my son is asking for one of them swords. Dad, go get me one of them swords. You know I can't swim, son. I'm going to go do... I'm trying to fish him out, whatever you can. So there's this idea that Moses had to force them out, but he forces them, whether there's any truth to that tradition or not, into the wilderness. The wilderness is bad, not good. We as modern people may think of the wilderness as some place you go camping on vacation. Like, oh, we're going to go up to Mount Madonna this 4th of July and go camping in the wilderness. They got yurts up there. Do you know that? It's nice. No, wilderness is 
the desert barren wasteland. It is the place of demons and evil gods that are out to kill people. There isn't food, there isn't water. It is the last place you want to go. And that's precisely where Moses forces them to go. And then the biblical authors, who are brilliant storytellers, include this detail. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now question, how long could you live without water? Give or take, you know, three, four, five days, depending upon the conditions. We know that Israel wouldn't have left without any water, but keep in mind, they couldn't bring tons of water. They're marching miles. They march through the Red Sea with all, everything they have in their possession and are walking miles in the desert. So whatever water they had, it's probably gone. And the biblical authors include three days for this reason. They want you to know that maybe they have a little bit of water. Maybe they've ran out. The point is they're almost done with. They're dehydrated and they're thirsty. And they can't go to a grocery store to buy anything. And they're in the desert wilderness. They're being brought to the point of death. Three days in the wilderness without water. Then it says, when they came to Mara, they could not drink the water of Mara because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Mara. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, what was repetitious there? Mara, Mara, Mara stands out three times. The biblical authors are saying, Look at here. Why is that important? They are brought to, to a place where there's water, but the water there is mara. The Hebrew word mara is bitter, meaning it has minerals or some salt concentration that they can't drink it. So it's like being dehydrated in the ocean. You can't just chug a bunch of ocean water. The water is mara. There's something else that might be going on here. Mara is translated bitter, and that's an appropriate translation, but the Hebrew word is, is a little bit bigger than, than, say, our English. Or our English word can include this too, but bitterness can also mean when someone becomes so bitter that they are um, purposely defiant or rebellious or disrespectful or refusing to give honor. So you can, for instance, become so bitter against your father that you refuse to give him any honor, and if he decided to tell you anything to do, you wouldn't listen to him anyway. So you've become Mara to the point of rebellion. In the Old Testament, it talks about sons who are Mara. And they didn't mess around back then. So you know what happened to sons who were Mara in the Old Testament? Capital punishment. A Mara son faced a death trial in the Old Testament. So the biblical authors might be saying something to us here. Yes, the water is Mara, but there's something else that's Mara here as well. And you're going to see in the story, it appears as if Israel is becoming ungrateful. They grumble. They complain. They themselves are like the water becoming Mara. The people grumble against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he, Moses, cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it in the water and the water became sweet. So, the water that was not drinkable, couldn't drink it, now is safe to drink and you can rehydrate. You'll survive. A couple things going on here. The word for, for log here could be translated stick or branch. It could be a big log, but it could just be a small branch or stick. 
And so it's important that God does the miracle like this because Israel could have been wandering and then just stumbled upon a water source and then go, oh, thank God this bum Moses who's leading us finally happened to stumble upon some water. We'll live for another day. Hallelujah. Amen. But that's not what happens. They get brought to, they get brought to a water source that they can't drink. And God has to divinely intervene to show them that it is by his personal hand that he is sustaining them by giving life-giving water. So you can't mistake it. It's not just you stumbled upon water. God brought you to clean drinking water. Secondly, there might be a lesson for Moses in this. Moses also has a stick that he does miracles with, right? What does he do? He touches the Nile, raises it up in the air, and miracles happen. There might be. We can't be certain but it could be as if God's trying to tell Moses, don't you think for a moment that you're something special or that your staff has some type of magical powers in it. I could use any old dumb stick. Want to see? Look at that log, Moses. This one, Lord? Yeah, that one. Just go throw it in the water and watch what happens. You're not special, Moses, which is a very important lesson for everyone. You're not special. God could use anything in anybody. There's, there's a way in which God doesn't want you to think yourself so special that pride overtakes you and you begin to think you're the one who works the magic. So take that log, Moses, and throw it in the water. Then the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Important word here. God is testing them. Now, the word test is problematic for us because when you hear the word test, all kinds of images float to the surface, and they're usually bad images. If you're in high school, you're a college student, what's a test look like? a paper that you have to get X amount of answers right in order to pass. Otherwise, you fail, right? Or maybe some of you might be thinking of something like a driver's license test, which you failed two times, and by God's grace, on the third time, right before you get cut off, you passed. Some of you might be looking forward to, some of you, it's been a few decades since you took a driver's license test, and so you're at that point where they want, want to, like, test it again, test your eyes. You're going, uh-oh. I'm in trouble. It's a test, and you fail. You fail it. That's not necessarily how test works in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word test, nisa, it, it mean, yes, it means test, but it also has this, you test metal to see if it's strong enough. You test metal to remove impurities. You test metal to see if it's pure. So testing in the biblical sense has, has a nuance that says, Something comes under a trial or a circumstance to reveal what is truly there. It is to reveal something that the eye would not normally see. And some of you know this exactly what I'm talking about. Some point in your life, you went through a trial, a tribulation, a testing. And something was revealed about your character that was not normally seen. You go through something painful and you go, man... I had no idea the strength that I had inside of me. You go through something like you go through hell and back, and five years ago you asked yourself, what would happen if something like that would have happened? You said, I'd crumble up and die. But somehow that testing produced something in you, and a character trait or a strength that you didn't know was inside of you was all of a sudden brought to the surface. The testing reveals something that was not normally seen. 
It could also be the opposite true. Some trial or tribulation comes in your life and you realize how rotten and bitter of a person you actually are. You know what I mean? Something happens and your attitude about it. Like some people have great attitudes because everything in their life is going great. And when it goes bad, watch their attitude change. That's biblical testing, revealing that which the eye normally not, does not see. So this is the first of three tests that God is going to bring his people into. Then before this first test ends, there's this interesting note here. It's bizarre. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So again, remember the biblical authors are brilliant storytellers. Before this test is closed, they tell you this detail. There's 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Now, there's a danger here. Two, two temptations that pull us in either direction when we read the Bible. When we see numbers in the Bible, one temptation is just to read the numbers and move on. Like, oh man, this stuff's boring. This guy lived to be this old. This dude was this old. They had this many kids and had this many descendants. These numbers are boring. Just get out of here. Get to the good stuff. Get to where the ocean kills the Egyptians. I like that part. That's the action movie, okay? You don't care about the numbers. There's another temptation on the other side where whenever you see numbers in the Bible, you're always trying to decode their secret meaning. You know what I mean? It's like, oh man, he, he had 16 grapes. There's a six and 16. And I know that when you get three sixes, it's really bad. And G is the, I didn't plan this. If this works, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. No, seven. I was going to say G begins with grape, and G is the, the sixth letter of the alphabet. That's two sixes. I'm only one sixteen away to know that grapes are part of the Antichrist scheme type of thing. You just get crazy, you know? You get crazy. You get tempted to every single number in the Bible has some secret code to be found. And then there's some people who are just, ah, whatever. Numbers don't mean anything. Numbers often mean something in the Bible. Not always, but often. So you have to be careful and attentive to the clues that the authors are throwing at you. And I think there's something going on here. I think. There's 12 springs and 70 palm trees. We're at the halfway point of the book of Exodus where God has delivered his people. They've crossed the Red Sea and they're now at the beginning of this wilderness experience. And he wants them to know that he has provided for them. He has specifically provided 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Now ask yourself, how does the book of Exodus begin? How does it begin? It doesn't begin with action. It begins with something that most modern readers skip over a list of a bunch of names and numbers. But in that, there might be a clue to what's going on. First verse of Exodus, chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now, some of you, again, be honest with yourself. Some of you, you're doing your reading plan. You go, oh, Reuben, Simeon, and the land was filled with them. And you just skip to the bottom. Look at no. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all the generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So who comes into Egypt? the 12 tribes of Israel, all the tribes. 
Joseph's a part of that. How many descendants of these 12 tribes of Israel come with him? 70. Now here's the thing. There might be a literal 70 descendants of these 12 patriarchs, these 12 tribal leaders. Or 70, oftentimes in biblical language, is a number for totality or completeness. It's like, it's like all of them. It'd be like, uh, you know, how many people came to your family barbecue? Oh man, all 70 of them. Now there might be 74, there might be 68, but 70 in the, in the Jewish mind is a number of wholeness, completion, it's a way of saying everything. Now, whether or not there's literally 70 descendants, I mean actual 70 boys and girls, or it's just a way of saying all of them, the point still stands. Exodus begins with saying this. Who came into Egypt? All the 12 tribes and all of their descendants. In the first provision in the wilderness, what does God provide? 12 springs and 70 palm trees. What I think is occurring, it's the way for the biblical authors to say, who was God providing for in the wilderness? All 12 tribes of Israel and all the children of Israel had shade underneath the palm trees. It's an image. It's a powerful image. That's how the first test ends. This is the second testing. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. That word sin, don't think anything, that, that's not the English word sin, so don't, if there was a wilderness that was actually named like sin in that sense, don't go to it ever. Um, this is the wilderness of sin, no relation to our English word sin, which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they're hungry. Now immediately you're going, These people are ungrateful, man. Ten plagues, parting the Red Sea, God just gave them water, and now they're complaining about being hungry? A bunch of ungrateful people. The detail the authors give you. When is it? Says the 15th day of the second month. If you're keeping track of the chronology, this is roughly a month from when they set out on the beginning of the Exodus. So, did they bring food with them as they left Egypt? Yes, of course. But were they bringing six months of supply worth of food to survive in the wilderness? No. They didn't have SUVs with trailers. They're carrying their elderly. They're young. So they had food. But after a month, they're probably running low. They're probably hungry. How long can you live without food? It depends on the person. I, got, I could live a little bit longer than, than the average person. You know, depends on the circumstances, the situation. You know how it works. But say, let's say it's three weeks. Let's say it's seven weeks. The point is this. It's been a month. They're starting to see their food supply, food supply deplete. And they cry out. And they grumble. Now, before you give these people a hard time, just know that some of you don't have food for like four hours and you're grumbling and cranking and saying things like what? I'm starving. I'm so, so, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm so hungry. Now there's another thing. It says they long, they want the meat pots of Egypt and their bread to, the, 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 when the bread was full. Psalm 78 actually reflects on this scene and says that 
the Israelites weren't just hungry, they were longing for the food of Egypt. Even more so, it says this, that the Israelites at this point demanded of Yahweh that he make them a banquet table in the wilderness. So it's not just that we're hungry, we want the good food, which again is a lot like us. Because you know, you, it's been four hours since you ate. You're saying, oh, I'm hungry. Then you make your way over to the fridge. Now this is true of many people, but it's particularly true of teenage boys. They open the fridge... They go, I'm so hungry. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to eat. And then they typically tell, depending upon the family situation, if, if there's just mom in the household, then they'll just call it a mom. But even, I mean, this is scientifically proven, even if there's a mom and dad in that household, 99% of the time, they say, mom, there is no food in the house. In which case, mom goes over to the fridge and clearly demonstrates that there are lots of different things to eat, right? But what's going on? It's not what he wants. You could eat the bologna sandwich. I already ate a bologna sandwich. Then why are you hungry? Type of thing. You know what I mean? Complaining. This is what's going on in the text. They're hungry, yes, but they want better food. They want the food they ate in Egypt. They demand that Yahweh throws a banquet feast for them. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God's about to rain bread from heaven, but they're only supposed to take how much? A day's portion. A day's portion. And this is the test. How much would you take? So there's going to be tons of this bread around. You're hungry, but you're only supposed to take a day. Now, if you've been wandering around in the desert, what do you do? You know, I'm going to want to stockpile this stuff. You know, it's been a long time since I ate good. I'm going to, I'm going to get, as long as there's stuff out there, you're going to look at it as a buffet. You know, I paid $18.95 to come into this joint. I'm going to make sure I eat $18.95 worth of them fried shrimp. I'm not going home. And if I get too full, I line my pockets. To, I'm going to stuff some shrimp in there. Some of you aren't laughing. Some of you are laughing because you know the guilt over your head right now. So the test is, are, will you rely on God to bring manna tomorrow? And will you trust that he'll bring manna the day after that and the day after that? Or another way to phrase it is, will you ask God for an overabundance of blessing? Or will you pray, give me today my daily bread? just enough for today, what will they do? So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against us, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Now, quick side note that is, is a little, not relating to, to, the, to the point of this, but this last line, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This, this is a way of saying that when the people grumbled against Moses, it was as if they were complaining against God. 
This is a verse, one of the verses, that's often used in times of what we'll call spiritual abuse, when, when spiritual leadership th thinks themselves too highly. And so if you disagree with the pastor or you have an accusation against the pastor, they say, well, you're not disagreeing with me. Your disagreement was with God. Don't you know when the people grumbled against Moses, they grumbled against God? And it's like, what you respond with in, in that saying, bro, you're no Moses. When the manna starts falling from the sky, when it's cloudy with the chance of meatballs and those types of miracles are going on, then that might be true. But pastors can be confronted. Spiritual leadership has to be put into check. It's not a, an authoritative position where you yield your power over others. It's a way to serve, as good shepherds always do. And some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but I've been in the church world long enough to know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? In Hebrew, manhu, so we get the word manna. What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. It's interesting language here. Gather it as much as you can eat. What did he say before? Just enough for the day. But now, as much as you can eat, and then as much as you can eat is immediately defined, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. Now, omer is a debated term about exactly how much that is. There's some people who go as little as a half a cup. Some people go as much as a full cup. But either way, half a cup or full cup, this isn't like tons of food. It's daily bread. It's enough for everyone to have enough. One of the other rules that God sets up is that he says on the sixth day, and on the sixth day alone, you can get double portion and collect two omers. Now, why on the sixth day can you collect double portion? The, se the seventh is the Sabbath. You're not to work on the Sabbath. So on the sixth day, you get double portion, and you don't gather on the seventh. It's another part of the test. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none and the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two, two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh. The people of Israel, and this is the side note, like there was a side note on the first test, the side, note, side note to the second test. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. It's test number two. The last test, the third one. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you should be saying, oh, I know what's going on. God is leading them. Day by day, pasture to pasture, he provides water after three days. Then he provides food after a month. And in this third time, they're going without water, but God will provide. The people have learned their lesson. They're going to trust that God will bring daily provision. That's not what happens. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
See the reversing here? This was a test for the people, and now they're testing God. But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. They want to kill Moses. They want to kill him. Now you can say, wouldn't the people love Moses after he did the ten plagues, part of the Red Sea, provided for them? How fickle are people with their love of leadership? Have you seen that? And this isn't, to, this isn't any like one president or Republican or Democrat, but you see this with, with American politics. There's usually a high point when like 60% of the population likes the president. You can, it's usually at a certain time frame in two in their run, and then there's a down, and they, they go down. It's, it's, it's like true almost every time. And then one thing happens or something happens, for good or bad, maybe they made a good move or a bad move, but all of a sudden it's like 25% of the population was, yeah, too. We don't, we don't like them. This should remind you of another leader who was loved by many people, who was brought into a city to be a king, and within a matter of days the masses wanted him dead. They want Moses dead at this point. They want to stone him. Now check this out. This is... The language here is fascinating on on multiple levels. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel." Now, as biblical readers, we always want to be picturing in our minds what the author is painting. So what's the picture look like? The people want to stone Moses. They want to kill Moses. He's not providing water. We're going to kill Moses. Where are they at? Rephidim. God tells Moses now to go to Mount Horeb. There's a rock or a cliff, depending upon the translation, a rock or cliff at Horeb. And he says, leave Rephidim, go over to this rock, and I am going to stand before the rock, and you strike it. You're picturing this. God is before the rock. His personal presence before the rock, and Moses is to strike at that rock. And as he does, out of Mount Horeb, water will flow. But it's not just any water, it's living water. In the ancient world, there's two types of water. There's normal water that's still, and then there's living water, maim chayim. Mein Chaim is moving water. So think of a stream. I, um, my kids are 5, 3, and 1, but I already teach them survival skills. And uh, when we go hiking, you know, if there's a puddle of water that's just gross and stagnant, it's like, kids, if it's really bad and you're out in the wilderness for a couple of days and you're dying of thirst and you can boil that stuff, go for it. It's going to taste nasty, but go for it but preferably find a stream of moving water and find the water where it's cooler and it's moving and it's clear. And if you can, still boil it, but if if anything, that's going to be the safer water to drink. The ancient world had still water and maim chaim, living water. What is going to come out of the rock is maim chaim, living water, because the people at Rephidim are not at Mount Horeb. That's Moses and the elders. Moses is going to strike at the rock and the stream is going to flow out of it down to Rephaim for the people to drink. Okay, now picture it one more time. Picture this. 
They want to kill Moses. They want to kill Moses. God says, go to Mount Horeb, and I will stand before the rock and strike it. Interesting bonus note, Mount Horeb is known as a different name throughout the scriptures. This is the place where the burning bush appeared, where God revealed himself. This is the region of Sinai. So at the very mountain of God, the very presence of God stands before the rock. Moses will strike at the holy mountain of God and out of the presence of the living God will flow streams of living waters for the people to drink. Do you see that image in your head? The biblical authors want you to picture this stuff. It's not just go over to this rock and hit it. Go over to Mount Horeb with the elders. Strike at it. I will stand before the rock and out of the mountain and out of my presence flows mine, Chaim, living water, clean, good, fresh drinking water. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, in biblical history, this begins, this is the start of a, what will turn into a 40-year period called the wilderness wanderings. This is like, this is the intro to it. It's like we're at the doorstep of the wilderness wanderings. It's not even begun yet. But for the next 40 years, there'll be a picture of the wilderness wanderings. And it appears in one sense as if the people of Israel are wandering aimlessly through the desert. It looks like a miserable time. 40 years is wandering around aimlessly, barely escaping death here, barely having water here, barely having food here, barely escaping this army here. It's wilderness wanderings. The Bible calls it the wilderness wanderings. So it has an appearance that the people of Israel are wandering aimlessly. Their steps are not numbered. But there's another way of looking at this. When the biblical authors, the prophets, later in the development of the Old Testament, reflect back on this period, they no longer picture it as wandering around in the wilderness. They say that Israel was being led like a flock. Psalm 77, speaking on the Exodus, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. A different psalm, Psalm 78, after recounting the Exodus story, it says, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. See, in one sense, there's an appearance that their feet were wandering aimlessly. But in another sense, the whole time that God was leading them as a shepherd, they were his flock. And he led them day by day from pasture to pasture. And if they listened to his voice, they like sheep would live. If they disobeyed, they would die in that wilderness. Which is incredibly important and relevant for us today. Because there's some of you who, in the past, or maybe right now in the present, feel as if you've been wandering, as if your feet have no purpose, they are aimless. You've been going around in circles, and maybe it's been a year, maybe it's two, maybe it's been 40 years of the same trial. You know how fickle we can be. 
We've been in a trial for six months. How about 40 years? And you feel as if you're wandering aimlessly. God is nowhere to be found. I failed God or God failed me. Whatever it is, he's not here. I'm wandering and I'm suffering. And this is a useless, pointless trial or tribulation. See, that's one perspective or the other perspective is to say, yeah, you've been in a desert. That's absolutely right. But you don't know how many times you were one step away from death and the shepherd was guiding your feet day by day, not with abundance, not with an overabundance, but with just enough, just enough, as if he was training you to pray, give me this day my daily bread, just enough. And so, yeah, it may appear like your feet are wandering, but you have to know Moses was a shepherd. God is like a shepherd. And it wasn't just in the wilderness wanderings that God was like a shepherd. The Bible always describes God like a shepherd. Isaiah 40, 11, He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to heart. Some of you need this image today. Picture it. You have to picture it. Don't just read it. Picture it. Do you see the shepherd taking the little lamb near the chest? near his heart. I'll protect you. I'll bring you to pasture. I'll bring you to food. Take you from one place to another. You have not been forsaken or abandoned. In the midst of the wilderness, a shepherd goes before you. Psalm 95, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. What a beautiful image of that that is the sheep of his hand. Later, there would be another shepherd who would talk of sheep being placed in his hand, and in his hands they are safe and secure. So out of this flow three ideas. I mean, out of this flow tons of ideas and concepts, but three that I want to have us focus in on. These stories teach us to be three things, dependent, thankful, and obedient. First, dependent. In the wilderness, you realize your utter dependence upon God. Now, granted, Israelite is dis- the Israelites are disobedient in the wilderness, but they're still crying out to Moses and to God. They're still crying out like, why did you leave us out here? Why did you lead us out here to die? They're grumbling and they're complaining. They know death's around the corner. So they may be disobedient, but at least they realize they're dependent upon Moses and or God. They understand there's a dependence there. And it's in the wilderness that God says, man, you're you're not going to forget me there because you're completely, utterly dependent upon me. But God does tell the Israelites through Moses when they will forget God. And it's not in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 6.10, And when the Lord your God brings you into the promised land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when do you forget God? When do you forget that you're completely dependent on a higher power, a being, an infinite mind? When do you forget that God is actually the one in control? Not when you're daily dependent upon him, but when you have everything you need. When you look around 
and say, look at what my hands have accomplished. Look at what I've done. These cisterns, these vineyards, these gardens, the modern day equivalent. Look at the job I have. Look at the home I own. Look at all that I have. Look what I have accomplished with these hands. It's when you think you aren't dependent upon him that then and precisely then you forget God. And you forget that everything you have is mercy and grace. You say, no, no, Isaac, I'm I'm smart and I worked hard. That's why I have lots of money. Man, you could be smart and work hard and you could have been born in a brick factory where you're destined to be a slave till the day you die. Do you realize this? There are brilliant people, geniuses, people who work hard that are born as slaves and destined to die in that. Any good thing you have is mercy and grace. Or a better way to put it is every good and perfect gift comes from above the Father of lights, the maker of heaven and earth. So it's when you got everything, man, that's when you forget God. That's when you forget. You realize, I'm not dependent upon anything. You begin to believe that lie. And in your pride, you become blind to his mercy. So you got to realize your utter dependence upon God. Two, you need to be thankful. You don't want to be like the Israelites grumbling. Be a thankful person. And you know what? The truth is, some of you have more things to be thankful about than others in this room. We're not all given the same set of cards. Some of you are born with a full house. Great parents, smart, good school, lived a great life, you know, perfect marriage, white picket fence. The dog sits when you tell it to sit, you know. Some of you don't, came from harsh backgrounds. I mean, harsh backgrounds. Your parents failed you miserably. You're always behind at school. You were behind at school because you always went to bed hungry and tired. You didn't have a mom there to care for you. So you've always just struggled to get by. No matter where you're at, in blessing, abundance, or just getting enough daily bread to get by, you got to learn to be thankful. The Bible says the will of God in Christ is to be thankful. The will of God in Christ is to be thankful. You want to know the will of God for you right now? Be thankful. So with whatever you have, thank you. You say, thank you, God. Thank you for my kids, Lord. Thank you for my family. And if you got nothing else but the breath in your lungs, Lord, thank you for the breath in my lungs. And even if you only got 10 breaths left, thank you for these last breaths that I have in my lungs. You learn to be thankful in all things. Now here's a test to know how much you are being a thankful person, how, how much you're being dependent upon God, how much you're thirsting for Him rather than the things of this world. There's a prayer that's in the Proverbs, and it's a prayer that no one prays. No one wants to pray this prayer. You know, everyone wants to pray those prayers that the prosperity people do. It's like, Lord, give me double portion and abundance. Multiply this, multiply that. How about this one? Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Okay, that's the first thing of two things. I don't want to be a liar. Make me a truthful person. Good, fair enough. Second part. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You get this. 
Lord, don't give me riches. If I get too much, I'll be tempted to forget you. But Lord, don't give me poverty. That's a hard life, and in poverty, I'll be tempted to steal. I don't want to be a thief. I want to be holy. Give me enough to do what you have of me. Give me enough to do your will in my life. In other words, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. That's a hard prayer. You realize how hard the Lord's prayer is? I don't want to pray for daily bread. I want to pray for monthly steak, daily bread. Did you guys know that, that when you map happiness and, and when you do the research on it, uh, money does, it does make you a little bit happier? You know, people say money can't buy happiness. Well, it does a little bit. Um, in fact, what it does is as soon as your daily needs are taken care of, you have food, shelter, and you can pay the rent, that's sort of the maximal happiness region. And then on the two opposite sides is where it goes down. So if you're living in like super poverty, you don't have enough to get by and you're always stressed, um, getting more resources where you can just pay the bills, it will make your life a little bit more pleasurable. But likewise, then increasing money and money, it doesn't add to the, to the happiness index. So if you were to play, if you were a gambling person and you were to bet who's happier, the 28-year-old Silicon Valley entrepreneurial who's making eight million a year and has got everything they want, or um, a poor grandmother who's got four kids and 12 grandbabies, has a number of health problems, and has to go to the doctor weekly for medication updates, and if you were to take a bet on who experienced more happiness. You should bet on, on the grandma. Now that's not like, what, I'm not talking about morality or what's right or wrong, I'm just talking about statistically. That person is gonna be statistically more likely to be happy than the other. So you wanna be grateful for your blessings. Lord, give me daily bread. Lastly out of this, obedience. What happens to the sheep if they do not listen to the voice of the shepherd. They die. I mean, the sheep literally die. You may die spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, or maybe, yeah, physically, you die. We are people of his pasture. We are to listen to the voice of our shepherd. Right now, there's a big problem in, in modern American Christianity. People don't want to obey the word of God. They hear his voice. They see it. It's written in a book. And when we see something that's too difficult, or I can't do that, or God wouldn't ask me to do, and, and we don't obey. Sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd because they know even if it means leaving something good behind, it means survival in the future. It means walking with the shepherd. Now, the worship team can make their way back up and the ushers can pass forward communion. God tells Moses something else. He says, one day, I'm going to raise up someone like you to lead the people of Israel like you have. He says in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God tells Moses, one day, someone like you another prophet like you is going to lead my people. And hundreds of years later, another prophet of Israel would arise. And just like Moses, and just like God the Father, 
he would be a shepherd, but he would shepherd in a way that Moses did not have to. See, this shepherd would say this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Our shepherd, Jesus, lays down his life. And why does the good shepherd lay down his life for his flock? Because we, like sheep, have all gone astray. We did not listen to the voice of the shepherd. And this shepherd will go to hell and back, to death and the grave and back. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And when you realize that this good shepherd is guiding you, it doesn't make life, e- it doesn't make life easier. It doesn't make like, all your problems go away. But you realize that, man, those wilderness wanderings, those times when I thought I was at my end, thought death was here. Maybe he was leading me all along. And maybe I wouldn't be at this very place today if I hadn't gone through what I had gone through yesterday. And so the good shepherd is leading you and guiding you from pasture to pasture. We are the sheep of his pasture. He puts us in his hand. And Satan, sin, death, hell cannot take you out. So because of that, we can go back to those three things we just learned and take communion in a different light. Because from the story of the wilderness wandering, we should learn that we should be dependent, thankful, and obedient. But from the story of Jesus, the good shepherd, you realize all the more how you should be completely, utterly dependent and trusting this shepherd. And you realize how thankful you should be. In the midst of whatever horrible things you have gone through, thank you, God, for the breath of my lungs. Thank you for salvation. Thank you, Lord. And you should then, in turn, out of thankfulness and gratefulness, be all the more obedient to listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Let's stand. Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This shepherd lays down his life. His body is broken on your behalf. Let us remember. Likewise, he takes the cup. says, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for you. Usually, it's the lambs that go to the slaughter. The story of Christianity is the story of the shepherd who becomes the lamb who goes to the slaughter on your behalf. Father, may we lift the name of your son high. May we be obedient thankful and realize our dependence upon you.